Hello everyone, and it is good to see you this evening. We are on our first week of seven weeks of Methodism 101. But we have to realize before we get to Methodism that there is this whole context of where Methodism comes from. And so even if we say to ourselves, oh well, John and Charles Wesley and their father Samuel were Anglican ministers. Okay, well, where did the Anglican church come from? And so I want to set the, uh, I want to set the context of Methodist history uh, in the larger and broader context of Christian history. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me tonight because we're going to cover about 1,800 years, 1,700 maybe, if, uh, if, we, if we do exactly what, what I hope that we will do. Well... 18 centuries of church history, and uh, we're going to kind of come together with those by looking at the major movements in Christian history, and uh, there are several of those. Um, Theodosius uh, was, in fact, the Roman ruler that made Christianity the, the official religion of the empire, and that happened in 380. So you might say that one of, the, one of the first major movements in Christianity was in early Christianity when Christians were persecuted, Christianity was outlawed, Christianity became legal so long as you practiced it under the auspices of the Roman Empire, and then suddenly, suddenly, it became in 380 the official religion of Rome. Um, this is actually a stunning piece of art that, as you can see, it's been cut in half. Um, it was folded. Uh, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things in my family history that I wish we'd taken better care of. And uh, this is one of those priceless pieces of art that shows a scene. Uh, it actually shows the, the ruler who made Christianity the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire. And somebody saw it as a great piece of metal and it wouldn't fit wherever he or she wanted to put it. And so they, they folded it in half and whoever found it thought, well, I'm just gonna open it back up again. And that's what happens um, when, when you do that. So after it became a state religion, it became a, a state faith. Um, Christianity moved along for 600, 650 years, and one of the first big movements <laughs> happened when the East and the West broke apart. So we know these churches now. The Western Church, we know as the Roman Catholic Church and most Protestant churches. The Eastern Church, we know of as the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, um, I'm a Seinfeld fan, the, the Latvian Orthodox Church, which George Costanza briefly converted to because he fell in love, if any of you are, are Seinfeld fans. Um, but the, the East and the West splintered in the year 1054 over two things, primarily, there are more than two things. But, but primarily, who's in charge of this organization that is known as the church? Uh, the Western Church said, well, the Pope is in charge. Who is the Pope? Well, he's the bishop in Rome, who was ordained by the bishop of Rome, who was, who was set in place by the bishop of Rome, and all the way back to Peter, who was the first. So in the West... The answer to who's in charge of this became the Pope. Now, in the East, we have, uh, we have uh, Constantinople. We, we've got a number of, of, of bishops and, and archbishops, but they have a collegial, rea a, a collegial kind of relationship with each other. And so the, the Western Church said the Pope is in charge. The Eastern Church said, well, you know, we kind of get together to make decisions. And you all didn't really ask us about who was really in charge. And not only that, but one of the, one of the key differences in the Eastern Church and the Western Church is the Nicene Creed. Now, we say the Apostles' Creed more often than we say the Nicene Creed. 
But if you look in the hymn book, the Apostles' Creed is just a couple of pages off from the Nicene Creed. And uh, if you want to memorize the Nicene Creed, it's Trinitarian, just like the Apostles' Creed. Um, in the West, they added, they added a, a small, small phrase that the East said we just can't deal with. So we've, we've got a section of the creed that deals with the Father, a section that deals with the Son, a section that deals with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the West, they changed the creed to we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now before that, the creed had simply read, like in the East, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Believe it or not, people took theology so seriously in the time before our current reality that, that the churches were like, wait a minute, we cannot, we cannot abide by you changing the creed without asking us. You've got this pope that, that we don't really agree should, should lead the church. And so East and West... Um, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope uh, mutually excommunicated each other uh, in the year 1054. So, first of all, we've got Christianity that goes from illegal to the religion of the empire. Second, we've got <coughs> churches in the West that split from churches in the East. And... The Eastern Church kind of goes off on its own way. And so you can consider the Eastern Church just, just outside of this. Because right now we're going we're gonna to focus on where Methodism <coughs> comes from, which is from the Anglican Church. And where Anglicanism comes from, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but there are a couple of things that happen that are worth looking at. The first is that there are three different reformations that take place around 1520 to 1535. You've heard of the three reformers, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and King Henry VIII. I want to treat Martin Luther and John Calvin together as these reformers. Martin Luther was... Uh, a monk, uh, uh, ordained Roman Catholic. Martin Luther, and this is kind of an aside that is almost embarrassing, but it's a legend that is too good um, not to share. Uh, it is said that Martin Luther was chronically constipated. <laughs> and in fact, one of the historical legends is that the insight that gave way to the Protestant Reformation uh, based upon a line that is in his journal, um, was when he was experiencing a blessed moment of relief <laughs> following a particularly difficult time. That's not provable. Um, you could argue one, one, of, one of either, either ways there. Um, but one of the things that made Martin Luther incredibly angry um, was this whole idea of indulgences. And they were trying to uh, raise money in order to refurbish St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And they sent a priest named Johann Tetzel to Germany to uh, try to raise funds to refurbish St. Peter's. The prince in Martin Luther's area was wise enough to actually declare that it was illegal to raise funds um, right there in town. So Martin Luther's parishioners, it, it's kind of like when you've got you know, a dry county and, and a wet county, you know where the county line is. Martin Luther's parishioners who were not allowed to go and to, to buy indulgences uh, went over to the next town and the town beyond that and 
got papers signed by Johann Tetzel that they had indulgences and they came back and proclaimed to Martin Luther that they did not have to repent of their sins because they had received indulgences. Well, this, this made Luther just incredibly, incredibly angry. Um, so when we look at like the, the life of, of Martin Luther, uh, he was ordained as a Catholic. Ten years after that, he engaged in church vandalism, taking 95 theses and, and nailing them to the door. A year after that, he was charged with heresy. He wasn't excommunicated immediately. The Pope sent him a, a letter asking him to renounce everything that he'd ever thought or everything that he'd ever written. And Martin Luther set fire to the Pope's letter. As you might imagine, the Pope was not amused. And so the following year, Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Um, he then went on to encourage the nuns and the brothers in monasteries and convents to leave. Leave the Catholic Church, he said. And one of those that left was Katharina von Bora, who was a former nun who fell in love with Martin Luther. They got married and had, from all accounts, a, a pretty loving relationship after that. Uh, by Augs by, by uh, 1530, the Augsburg Confession had been written and Luther died of natural causes as opposed to being burned or stoned or beheaded or any of the other ways that a heretic could die. Um, he died a natural death in, in 1546. So we've got the, the Reformation of Martin Luther. We've got the Reformation that takes place about the same time. John Calvin uh, is, is French and he studies law. He has this conversion experience. Some say it happens in 1530. Some say it happens in 1533. It's around that time. Um, in some of his commentary on the Psalms is, is where we find him report that conversion experience. And it, it goes something like this. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein that even though I didn't altogether leave my other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor. I pursued them less vigorously. So we've got this conversion experience. Um, by 1536, John Calvin has left the Catholic Church. We don't know exactly how this happened. We don't know precisely when this happened, but by 1536, he has published his Institutes of the Christian Religion, and he has left the Catholic Church. Now, one of the great questions of history that nobody can really prove for sure is whether or not John Calvin was ordained. Um, there, are, there are a couple of different options. He was ordained Catholic, and then left the Catholic Church. Um, he was ordained Catholic and then ordained Protestant, which is a possibility. He was never ordained Catholic, but was ordained Protestant. It's another possibility, but we have no record of his ordination. Um, so it's possible that John Calvin was not ordained at all. In 1564, John Calvin dies. Okay, so we've got these, these reformations. The first two that we look at are the reformations of Martin Luther and John Calvin. And uh, even though they didn't exactly put them in these terms, uh, some of their modern followers, in much the same way that we as Methodists, will talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral later on. John Wesley never used that term. Uh, it, was not, it was not coined until the, the 20th century with, with a Wesleyan scholar, Albert Outler. So th these guys never used these, these five solas together. But essentially, the Reformation, according to Martin Luther and according to John Calvin, can be said to have five solas, five onlys. First of all, 
only grace, sola gratia. We are saved only by the grace of God. We're not saved because we are good people. We're not saved because God owes us anything or we deserve anything. We're saved by grace alone. Um, Sola fide, faith alone. It's faith that saves us. It's not good works. It's not being born of the right parents or being a member of the right church. It It is faith alone that saves us. Solus Christus, um, Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone. We're not saved by Christ plus a good life. We are not saved by Christ plus the intercession of the the Virgin Mary. We are saved by Christ alone. Uh, Here's one for good Protestants. Sola Scriptura, the Bible only. So what we can't prove in the Bible say, Luther and Calvin. Um, What is not found in Holy Scripture is not to be taught as an article of faith because the Bible alone is our rule of living and our rule of faith. And then the last one is soli deo gloria. Only glory to God or glory to God alone, which is a reaction against uh, the the Roman Catholic uh, idea of veneration of saints, of um, the veneration of of certain certain people who have who have died, um, the prayer to the saints. Uh, so these are these are the five ways in which the reformers departed from the Catholic Church. So by grace alone, at least in the time of Martin Luther. Uh, Grace and works would have been considered to be kind of the, the, the way that, that salvation was achieved. By faith alone, um, by faith alone, or faith in, in buying an indulgence down the street. Um, by Christ alone, well, Christ plus, plus the parish priest that you wound up confessing to. Um, Christ plus the, the work of the church. Um, Sola Scriptura, the, the Catholic Church would, would have said, no, it's not just Scripture, but it's tradition and, and reason, too, that, that save us. And uh, glory to God alone, the, the Catholic Church would have said, um, well, you know, we, we recognize that there are many people that are, that are worthy of our honor uh, in, in the faith. So, so this is the Reformation, the, the two Reformations. So, so far, we've got... Outlawed Christianity to Christianity is the state religion. We've got the East that has split from the West. And in the West, where Roman Catholicism is, 1520, 1530, 1533, in three different places, started by Martin Luther and yet not really started by Martin Luther. There were some there were some people in uh, in in England who were who were already having these kinds of, of thoughts. So so there's this movement in Europe um, to say that that Catholicism needs reforming. And so there is, in addition, the English Reformation. Now the English Reformation is really fun to talk about because it is incredibly different. Martin Luther had this amazing insight. So the amazing insight was we are saved by faith. Where he got that insight, use your imagination, uh, but but Martin Luther had this amazing insight. It was theological. Uh, John Calvin had this conversion experience. The English Reformation had little to do with theology, at least on the surface, and everything to do with politics. It was spurred by political and not theological concerns. Um, Henry VIII has married Catherine of Aragon, and she seems unable to produce a male heir who who lives. Um, Henry believes he's actually a very religious man. Um, Henry would sometimes go to Mass 
five times a day. Henry believes that he is, that this marriage is cursed. He believes this marriage is cursed because Catherine of Aragon had been married to his brother. And because she had first been married to his brother, he did not believe that he should then have married her. Now, the interesting thing is that it was against church law at that time for a man to marry his brother's wife. And so Henry VIII had gotten a special dispensation from the Pope to marry his brother's wife. Now, he says to the Pope, you know, you shouldn't have done that. I think, I think that, that you have overruled God's law, and therefore you need to grant me an annulment so that I may marry this woman that I happen to already have fallen in love with, Anne Boleyn. So the Pope refused. He said, I'm not going to grant you um, an annulment because I've already made a ruling in this, or the, the office of Pope has already made a ruling in this case. Um, and so Henry is like, well, I don't want to be married anymore to Catherine. I want to marry Anne. So what can I do to, to make sure that, that I can get what I want? Um, so Henry VIII said, I call interference in domestic policy by foreign powers. No joke. He said, the Pope is the leader of Rome. The Pope is the leader of a foreign power. And a foreign power is telling me what, what I can and I can't do. And so... Henry VIII assumed the power of, uh, of being the head of the church. Okay, so basically he said to, to the clergy um, in England, you need to recognize me as, and this is a quote, your singular protector, only and supreme lord, with a lowercase l, not, not capital L, and as far as the law of Christ allows, the supreme head of the church. The king was given spiritual authority. Um, and the privileges of the church were not permitted to interfere with the privileges of the state in what was called the Submission of the Clergy Act. And even today, like uh, when, when Charles and Diana got divorced... Um, it's a huge deal, right? Because eventually, I believe that Queen Elizabeth is going to live to about 120, and she's going to be just as sharp as she was when she was 46. Um, but eventually, Prince Charles is going to become king, and he is going to be, in some sense, not exactly this sense, they've, they've updated the language a little bit, but he's going to be the head of the Church of England, um, the Church of England uh, believes that marriage is uh, for life, and it was a problem. That's, that's why it took so long for Charles and, and Diana to, to get a divorce. It's why um, the, the divorce rate in the royal family, which seems to have skyrocketed, uh, is still problematic uh, for, for a family, the head of which is the head of the church. So... Henry took over the churches within the boundaries of England. Um, the church owned somewhere between a third of the land and a fifth of the land, depending on how you calculate that. And so there was an economic value for taking over the land, too. Uh, it was quite valuable to the crown. Uh, but when Henry did that, there was a lot of chaos that followed. Now, here's why the chaos followed. Because Martin Luther had had his insight and had published that insight by faith alone all over Europe. John Calvin is writing his institutes. And so the good clergy in the Church of England aren't in a vacuum. The good clergy in the Church of England 
have, even before Calvin and Luther, um, thought to themselves, uh, the church could be better than it is. But there were some who followed Calvin, there were some who followed Luther, there were some who were loyal to the king, there were some that were not loyal to the king, and if you were not loyal to the king but were loyal to the pope, you might lose your head, quite literally. But, but here are the things that started happening once Henry took over. Um, Protestant thought came into the church. There were a few that sympathized with, with him as king. There were many people that sympathized with, with Luke, Luther and Calvin. And there were other radical groups like the Anabaptists uh, that, were, that were considered to be you know, kind of out there, but, but their influence came into the Church of England uh, as well. The clergy started saying Mass in English and not in Latin. And in addition, some of them started getting married. So, like, imagine the church in, in 10, 15 years' time had gone from a, a Roman Catholic church to a church that, if you went into one church with an Anabaptist-influenced pastor, you could, you could be in a very different church uh, than if you went to the church in downtown London. I don't know if you go to church on vacation or not, but it's always, it's always interesting to go to, to different churches. used to be, like... 50 years ago, you could go to a Methodist church in uh, Virginia Beach or in Myrtle Beach or in Gatlinburg or in Danville, and you would hear pretty much the, the, the same kind of sermon. Um, you, would, you might even have the same scriptures read, and it would, the service would be about the same. Um, but if you, go to, if you go to a different Methodist church now, you might, be, you might go to a charismatic church, um, you might go to a, to a church that seats 400 but has 16 in, a, in attendance, um, one of the old flagship kinds of churches that, that didn't buy parking places. Uh, you might get a service very much like that at Centenary. It, it just depends. So um, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that started happening there in the, in the uh, English Reformation. So all of that to say, Follow the path. Christianity is legalized. East and the West split. The West becomes what we know of as Roman Catholic. The Protestant Reformation takes place. And then Henry VIII takes the English-speaking church out of the Catholic church. And this gives us what I'm calling the Anglican setting. And the Anglican setting is where Methodism was born. Methodism was born in the middle between the streams and the extremes of the Church of Rome and Protestantism. It manages to avoid indulgences, the Anglican Church does, while at the same time it avoids this idea that that faith alone is what's called for. Now, the criticism of faith alone, sola fide, is, is does God expect us to have lives that bear fruit? Martin Luther said, no, it is, it is by faith alone that you are saved, and therefore, if you decide to sin, go out and sin boldly. Do, do it with, with all of your might because it's faith alone that, that saves you. Um, Catholics, Anglicans are like, you know, don't determine to do something that is against the will of God. Determining to do something that is against the will of God is kind of a bad idea. Uh, every now and then, someone will come to me for pastoral care. Can I be forgiven for the affair I'm about to have? <laughs> like, go ahead and, and think, of, think of that question, um, and you know, I, I, suspect, I suspect that God loves us so much that, that over time, uh, even that can be redeemed, but someone who's, uh, who's conscious of it being wrong and setting out to purposefully to purposefully engage in that behavior. Um, so, so 
the Anglican Church is kind of in, in, in the middle here. The Anglican Church listens to faith alone, but also says God expects our lives to change. God expects good works to flow. So this is, this is where Methodism comes from. Uh, the 39 articles of religion are established in the Anglican Church. They've got the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And, okay, if we, if we could share things with different denominations, everybody ought to sing like the Pentecostals. Everybody ought to use the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Um, everybody ought to have the, the warm heart of the, the best Methodists who like to, to love people. You know, if, we could, if we could share the best of what every tradition brings, the Book of Common Prayer is, is just an amazing, amazing contribution to Christianity. Um, Anglicanism brought married clergy. So when Henry VIII took the English churches out of Rome, the priests were like, aha, we can get married now. And they did. And then he's like, wait a minute, I didn't mean to take it that far. And then he sort of forbade married clergy. Um, eventually, they were, they were permitted again. And uh, by the time John Wesley's father who was an Anglican priest, uh, was, was in the priesthood. Why, of course, they were married. And, uh, there was a church that was linked closely to the state. And the clergy were... The clergy were loyal to the king or to the queen. Now, here's how that plays into Methodism. Methodism in America became a phenomenon oh, around 1770s. Um, John Wesley was an Anglican priest until the day he died. He was, he was never anything other than an Anglican priest. And he expected all Methodists to be Anglicans. Have your babies baptized in the Anglican church. Go take communion in the Anglican church. And when Methodists came over to America, the colonies they had... Anglican priests, but as you might imagine, it became quite dangerous for Anglican priests around the year 1776. Their head, their loyalty was because of their oath with the king. And so 1776, any Anglican priest with half a lick of sense got on a ship and headed back to England. So where do the Methodists get baptized? And where do the Methodists take communion? Suddenly you've got this whole group of people, and, and uh, John Wesley was a master statistician. Uh, at the time of his death, he had recorded exactly how many Methodists there were in North America, and I cannot remember that number. But all these people with nobody to serve them religiously. And so if you talk to our Anglican or Episcopalian brothers and sisters, they'll say, Chris, your ordination is not valid because we were, we were ordained by a bishop who was ordained by another bishop who was ordained by the Archbishop of Canterbury who was ordained by, by the Pope who was ordained by... So, so we're all in a line, but they'll say, Chris, you're not in the line because that line has been broken. John Wesley did not have... The, the, the founder of Methodism did not have the authority to ordain bishops. But after all the American Anglican priests left, John Wesley saw what, what he believed to be a whole nation of sheep without a shepherd. And because of that, um, Wesley ordained two bishops and sent them to, to ordain clergy all over North America. And so there's, there's a break there, an apostolic succession, we might say. Now my retort is, well, my bishop laid hands on me, his bishop laid hands on him, at some point in the distant past, Francis Asbury laid hands on someone, 
John Wesley laid hands on them. The Archbishop of Canterbury laid hands on John Wesley, so they see a break. I see a little less of a break than, than they might. Um, but, but Wesley said, sheep without a shepherd. I've got to do something. And I would absolutely be, be not listening to my calling if I left all of these people without some sort of spiritual guidance and without um, some sort of spiritual leadership. But one of the coolest things about this middle way, and the Anglicans are really happy to say we're the via media, the, 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 the middle way between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, is that Anglicanism brings a serious engagement with both the ideas of church and the Protestant notions about grace, about faith, about the uniqueness of Christ, about the importance of Scripture, and about the centrality of God and God alone as an object of our worship. And so this middle way um, combines some of the best elements of, of Catholicism and Protestantism together to form the, the fertile soil in which John Wesley was born. Um, now by the time of Wesley, part of, part of Wesley's frustration was that he said, the church around me is dead. It's just dead. Nobody's excited about anything. Nobody's bearing fruit. Um, we need revival. And during the lifetime of Wesley, revival does break out. And just like, just like in the 1520s and 1530s, the Reformation breaks out in three different places within, within 20 years. Um, revival breaks out in, in various places uh, during Wesley's day. Jonathan Edwards uh, preaches his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, revival breaks out. Wesley, Wesley sees it happen in, in England. And so anyway, this, this is an overview of the soil of Methodism. We come from the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church has in my mind an almost, an almost laughable origin of Henry VIII wanting an annulment and saying, well, if you won't give me one, I will, uh, I'll, I'll take over myself. But that's an overly simplistic way of looking at it. If the clergy in England hadn't already had these thoughts of what a reformed church could look like, he'd never been able to do it. Uh, he would not have been able to to pull it off if there wasn't already some sort of seed of reformation uh, that had been planted. So that's where we come from. We come from Anglicanism that comes from Western Catholicism uh, that comes out of this long history. And so as, as United Methodists, we can claim as our own uh, figures throughout the history of the church. Uh, Figures from from the fourth century and the eighth century, uh, we're 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 products of of the East and the West when they were together. The the, the West uh, for fifteen hundred years, the Protestant Reformation. We can claim both Protestant and uh, and Catholic writers and thinkers in in our history. So that's a brief overview of seventeen. 18 centuries of church history. Speak just for a minute and kind of talk a little bit about the build a little bridge between the Anglican, the English Reformation and the time of Wesley. Um, <clears throat> what we find is uh, after the Reformation, the Reformation is very complicated and it is one of those things the politics came first and the theology came later. Henry VIII was, he, he defended clerical celibacy practically to the end, but he managed to surround himself with a bunch of people who turned out to be convinced Protestants. And they started the prayer book, and then he ended up having three children. Now in England, and they've only recently changed this, 
It used to be that you had to go through all the male children, oldest to youngest, go through all of them, and then you'd start over. Then you'd go back to the girls and fill them in. So if the girls were the oldest, as were the case, because this thing was Catherine of Aragon could have children, but she only seemed to produce a, a female child. And so she has a child named uh, Mary. She and so and then, um, and, but then he and finally Anne Boleyn. That doesn't work out either. Most of you know that he ended up being married six times. <laughs> and Catherine Parr, his sixth wife, is also a convinced Protestant, and he almost has her killed, but she's just smart enough uh, to outlive him. Uh, a fate that many of his other wives did not quite establish. And Anne Boleyn has a daughter. She ends up getting involved, and they end up. She ends up becoming headless, and then he ends up marrying Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour dies, but before she dies, she bears him a son, and uh, that son ends up being a king after Henry VIII dies. He becomes king as a small child. His two older sisters, but he's a small child. He's surrounded by Protestants, and so at that point, they bring a lot of Protestant theology in. Uh, Martin Bucer, the reformer, comes from Strasbourg, comes to Cambridge. But the thing is, he is very young, but he's very sickly, and he dies. Then Mary, uh, then Mary, who is Catherine Aragon's daughter, she comes to the throne. She's known as Bloody Mary. They try to bring Catholicism back. They execute the Protestant leaders, including Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer, the three great reformers. What time period? This is about the 1550s, uh, 1550s, and then, um, but then she dies. And who comes to the throne then was Anne Boleyn's daughter, who is a moderately inconsequential figure known as Elizabeth I. So if you know English history, you know she's not inconsequential at all. And she ends up coming up with something called the Elizabethan Settlement, which is that via media. This works. Uh, in the 16th century under James I, they produce a Bible. Did anyone want to guess what the Bible's called? King James Bible. <laughs> or the authorized. That's why it's also called the authorized version. That's instead of the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible of the, of the Continental Reformation. Well, after James comes Charles I, and Charles I is kind of a weaker king. And, uh, and then at that time, also rising, is this idea of Puritanism. You've all heard of Puritans? They're the people at the buckled shoes who founded Massachusetts, <laughs> otherwise known as pilgrims, right? And they come, and they have very distinct ideas what church ought to be about. And uh, one of their things is they think that no one should be in charge, even the king. And they have these crazy ideas about representational government, republics. And they get in charge of parliament. And Charles calls what in 1640 is called the Long Parliament. Some of you know English history, what happens by the end of the 1640s. Uh, Charles I, and they end up uh, executing Charles I, plunging the nation into 10 years of civil war. And you ask, why does this matter? I'll tell you in a minute. The leader of that is a guy named Oliver Cromwell. He dies. It all falls apart. And they bring a king back. Charles I, by this point, is known as this great and decent man, railroaded by the extremes of crazy religion. You know people like that today, right? Religion is dangerous. It poisons things. And so they have, in 1660, called the Restoration. Well, the restoration, and then, so what they do is they say, well, religion's not bad as long as you keep it private, right? You, you go to church, do your thing, but when religion becomes something that makes you crazy and makes you want to do things like overthrow the government, uh, it's bad. So religion is fine, but in small doses, and so in 1662, they pass what's called the, uh, the, 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 act, of, the act of Uniformity. And in 1662, they introduce a new prayer book, the 1662 Prayer Book, which is still the official prayer book in England, in the Church of England. And they say, um, if you do a service, you have to use this prayer book. You have to use these set prayers. Now, by this time, many of the, of the, of the ministers were still in many ways Puritans. They believed in services like ours, extemporaneous prayers, uh, biblical, you know, preaching, biblical preaching on a text that they derive, not based on what the book tells you to preach on. And in 1662, they said, if you won't use the Book of Common Prayer, you've got to go. 
you got to go. You know, moderation in all things. If you're a crazy religious person, you got to go. And, uh, and, and, and in 1662, two of the ministers who were expelled were John Wesley's two grandfathers. Um, one was in a rural parish near Bristol on the western coast of England, and one was the rector of St. Giles in the Fields in London, which is a church that still exists. You can still visit it today. It's called In the Fields, but it is today surrounded, if any of you know London, it's surrounded by the Barbican development. In fact, they sink it in the middle of concrete. <laughs> it's just concrete plaza as far as you can see from this church that is otherwise a medieval church. And his dad was there. And St. Giles of Field was known as one of the great Protestant churches of London. If you know John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress, or you've at least heard of it, uh, he was a member of that church, and they expelled them. And so uh, both Wesley's parents grow up in what are called nonconformist churches with nonconformist parents. And so what happens to overall in, in England, if the attitude toward religion in England is, it's fine, as long as you don't get crazy about it, what happens to the church? But it just gets weak. It goes the other way. I know, we think we're Americans, we're naturally rebels. We're like, if they tell us we can't do it, we're gonna do it more. That is true of human nature. Those of you who have children can particularly attest to it. But what happens is the church becomes weak. And so basically they say, you can do whatever you want. You can preach on Sunday. You can stay at home. In fact, in the 18th century, it was said that the, a very common habit among clergy, uh, this is true actually, was they were involved in cockfighting. That was a great hobby that clergy had. They would have chickens, they'd fight each other, and when one clergy's chickens win, they'd ring their church bells. <laughs> so England, the, re the, 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 regent, the restoration period, uh, Charles, Charles II was not a particularly uh, religious man. He turns out his primary thing was a large number of mistresses that he maintained. And so uh, the, the culture was very decadent. The early 18th century comes around, or then, it's, then it comes, James II comes. James II has a problem. He is basically a Catholic. He tries to restore Catholicism, and Parliament says, you can't do this, and invites his cousin, Mary, and her husband, William of Orange, to come over from the Low Countries, from Nether the Netherlands, and they say, why don't you come be our king and queen together? Some of you are familiar in this country, what is a living reminder of that is the college in Virginia that is the College of William and Mary, which was founded while in 1696 when they, were, when they were monarchs together. And so the College of William and Mary, William and Mary come, and, uh, and they, uh, they come, and, and, and the problem with the church is it becomes very mild, very simple. It's also a time of great uh, change in the economy, it's the beginning of what's called the Industrial Revolution. People are moving to these cities that have no room for them. Uh, London had been devastated by the plague, but then by the Great London Fire and, uh, in 1666. And so London had been rebuilt, uh, but it was not built large enough. And so people lived literally on top of each other. If you think of stories you've heard of New York City 100 or 150 years ago, uh, this, they rush into the cities. There's also the mass production of uh, alcoholic spirits, especially gin, which is cheap. You know, it was, a pence, it was a pence to get drunk, two pence to get dead drunk, they said. <laughs> and so what you see here, what I'm trying to build a bridge is to say, you, you, Wesley enters in a world of a weak, culturally compromised church, enters into a world of, of economic change, the old ways of life are dying, and new ways are coming, but they're not here yet. And it comes into a world uh, where, uh, where there is a mass problem with addiction. Just take those three things. Does that not feel a little bit like our day today? And so Wesley comes in the midst of this. Uh, of a church that's, that's all about you know, maintaining what it has and its prerogatives. Uh, and, and, and he's raised in the parsonage. And we'll talk more about that next week. But he comes into a world, and, and what he sees is that what, what Chris said, people aren't taking it seriously. And he says, you know, if we're going to be religious, there's got to be more to being religious than going to church on Sunday. 
there's got to be more than saying, well, you got to hope and you got to have faith, and uh, but, but it doesn't make a difference in your life. It's got to make a difference. Uh, so that's what, what Wesley's about. And there's some pockets of that rising in England at this time. So uh, I hope that helped. We want to build a bridge and say, hey, he's coming into this world of the 18th century that is uh, very troubled. Uh, but it's, you know, and, and a lot of us, I think, we're concerned about the church. We're concerned about addiction. We're concerned about economic dislocation, uh, where good-paying jobs that our parents or our grandparents had, uh, that, you know, that, that those kind of jobs aren't around anymore. And new things are coming. That was a time in, in Wesley's time. I think that's why it's so exciting to, to think about Wesley, but, but then to find that God, uh, God really acts. God really makes a difference. So we're talking a little bit of history here at the beginning. Where did Methodists come from? And we're also going to get to, um, within the next, the, the second half of our time together, we're going to get to, okay, what does Methodist theology look like in the 20th century? What are the, what are the characteristics of Methodist theology? But in order to understand that, there, there is this foundation, there is this soil from which Methodism grew, um, which is the, the soil of, of the Church of England, in the 1700s, Wesley was born in 1703. Um, he was he was ordained as a as a fairly young man. So we've got this convergence of of Anglican Catholic thought in this evangelical fervor of this man who is absolutely obsessed with finding out whether or not he's saved. And uh, I, I remember hearing one time a psychiatrist say to a group of therapists and pastors, we all know why we got into this profession. He said, first of all, we wanna make sure that we ourselves are okay. <laughs> and, and then we wanna help others. But there's this, there's this deep need to know that, that we're, we're saved. And for, and for John Wesley, he was ordained as a clergyman and wasn't sure that if he died, uh, he would, he would wind up on the right side. Um, so it's a great history that we have that then will bring us to you know, some of the characteristics of, of being a Methodist and Methodist thought in the 21st century, um, as well as uh, you know, some of the, the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We'll look at that late in, in our time together, week five or six, I think. Um, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, if you look at how people use that, you see why we have so many radically different opinions in the United Methodist Church and how for a while they've been able to be held together um, for 40, I'm doing uh, 48 years, 50, 50 years now, 51, 52. Um, 50 plus, we'll say that. <laughs> 1968 was the founding of the United Methodist Church. Um, but that's just a, a beginning look.